I've got somebody fumbling <laughs> underneath my clothes. Forget about what I said about shocking. What you just witnessed <laughs> is probably unparalleled on this platform. Thank you, Nate. You love me enough to do the hard thing. Where was I? It, it, it's hard when somebody, you know, pats you down and, and publicly and then, yeah, it, it's the chosen. I, I have a hard time picturing Jonathan Rumi even saying these words. Jesus says those words about eating his flesh, drinking his blood. Most of the disciples, his followers, hit the exits. They hit the door. They're out. Jesus is left just with 12, the original 12. And he asked them, are you leaving too? Are you headed for the exits? And Peter responds with one of the most heartfelt confessions of faith and hope in all of Scripture. He says, where am I going to go? Where would I go? You alone have the words of eternal life. That's the summary of what we're going to read in John chapter 6. We're going to pick up starting in verse 6. This is after Jesus says that startling statement. It says, when many of his disciples that heard that you're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? And remember, he's talking here to more than the 12. There's still a large gathering of people that are following him, that are his disciples that are present. He says, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe in this large crowd of followers and who it was, Judas, who would betray him. Verse 65. He says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. After this, many, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus is left with the twelve. And he says, and I love the humanity of our Lord in this question. He says, do you want to go away as well? You can feel the hurt. You can feel the disappointment in his voice. You can sense the humanity, the, the, the feeling that he is being abandoned. So Peter answers him, verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. If Christianity is really the answer, if Christianity is really true, if the only path to find purpose and meaning and hope and wholeness and eternal life is found through this person that says, I am the bread of life. I am living water. You have to feed on me. If it's true, what is the more dangerous position for us to hold? Is it more dangerous for a person to openly reject Jesus openly and outwardly and say, that's not for me? Or is it more perilous to follow Christ for the wrong reasons? In this passage, you see 
most of those that were followers of Christ, most of those that were disciples, hit the door and they left. The most perilous diseases are the ones that kind of work behind the scenes. And the person appears vibrant and healthy until they're not. I mean, if you've ever had somebody that suffered, like my, my mother passed from ovarian cancer years ago. She was so healthy, so vibrant, and all the while she was deathly ill and she did not know it until it was too late. False discipleship is kind of like that. It works under the surface of what appears to be spiritual health until it surfaces and everything comes crashing to the ground. Over and over in Scripture, Jesus spends a lot of time on this issue of you got to know why you're following me. You need to follow me for the right reasons. He spends a lot of time on false discipleship. There's a parable of the ten bridesmaids. On the outside, all ten look exactly the same. They're all enthusiastic. They're all in the right place. But in reality, only five are ready for the bridegroom and five are completely unprepared. And in the end, the five that aren't ready are rejected. There's a parable of the two houses. Both houses look exactly the same from the ground up. The only difference is what they're built on. What is their foundation? One is built on the rock, the other is on sand. When the storms of life hit, one stands, one falls. Jesus tells the story of the parable of the sower. Four types of soil. The soil represents our hearts. The seeds that are sown represent the gospel, the word of God. All four have germination. The intended plant kind of springs up from the ground, but in the end, there's only one that produces a harvest. And then maybe the most troubling, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says he starts talking and teaching about the last day, about the judgment day. And he says there'll be pastors and teachers that will come before him on that day and be totally surprised they're not in. They're out. And they'll say, Lord, Lord, we, didn't we do all these things? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we perform miracles? Didn't we heal the sick? We did all these things in your name. These are Christian leaders. And Jesus will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. You were never mine. You never belonged to me. So, according to Jesus, it's much more perilous to be following him for the wrong reasons, to be a false disciple, than it is to be a non-Christian. And why? Because somebody that honestly rejects Jesus can more easily pursue repentance, but somebody that thinks they've got it all together, they have all the answers, it's really, really difficult for them to surrender, to come to saving faith. And we, the church, spend an awful lot of time, not this church, but the church at large, a lot of time and energy on those that seemingly used to be authentic disciples. We study them. We analyze them. We create separate categories for them, or maybe they create some categories from themselves. You might have heard of the term deconstruction. There's all kinds of books and articles and blogs written 
on people that grew up in the church and now they're deconstructing their faith. They're disappointed in the church. They're rethinking who Jesus really is. They're not really buying into a lot of the moral tenets that they used to believe. There's a newer term called exvangelical. I used to be evangelical, but now I'm not. And the common denominator seems to be the church disappointed them or hurt them. Second common denominator is they all seem to have a low view of Scripture. Scripture is not something I submit to. It's not the law of God. And, and by the way, 100% of us in this room today are not perfect. We are imperfect people. The church is a place that relationships come together. Relationships are tough. Carla was just sharing with me the other day how tough it is to be married to me. She said, I put a lot of work into this thing. Because I disappoint. I can let you down. Relationships require forgiveness and grace. And somehow, Jesus loves the church. He loved it so much that he calls it his bride. I meant, really? With all the flaws, all the blemishes, he says, it's my bride. I'm the bridegroom, and I die for her. And the good news is, is that if he can love the church, if he could go back and love those 12 bumbling disciples, I think he has room for you and me around the table. So don't give up on church because somebody does something stupid or somebody doesn't do anything and you wanted them to do. Stay, work at it. As long as the teaching is sound and people are there that love the Lord, you can be an imperfect person joining an imperfect group of people serving a perfect God. Don't give up. And I just happen to think, when I'm thinking about how much energy we spend on studying these folks that have one foot in and one foot out, we chase them, we analyze them, we write about them, we try to change our approach to how we phrase things in the church, to placate those who have one foot in and one foot out. But what if, what if we spent half the amount of energy we use for that to reach people that say, I am completely lost, I am out, and they don't have the roadblocks in front of them. Jesus said he came to seek and save the lost. The word discipleship means following. In verse 60, Jesus begins to talk to a large group of his disciples. It's much larger than the 12. And in verse 64, he says, there's some of you who do not believe. And what he's showing here is it's possible to follow Jesus and not have saving faith. It's possible to follow Jesus for all the wrong reasons. It's possible to follow Jesus and be wrong-headed in who he really is and what he's asking of you and what he requires. It's possible to follow him and not be sold out and not be completely surrendered. There were people that day that were following him for all kinds of wrong reasons. They thought he was the Messiah 
So they followed him, a political messiah that was going to overthrow Caesar and the Roman rule. Some followed him because they saw the miracles that he performed. Some followed him because if you look prior in this chapter, it's the loaves and fish. And they got their bellies full and they thought, he's my meal ticket. He's my Lord and that dude can cook. And I'm going to sit at his table and get fish and bread and it's going to be incredible. So they're there in the crowd. And they were following Jesus until this statement. He starts talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And they say this is a hard teaching. That phrase hard teaching doesn't mean it was hard for them to understand what he was saying. It wasn't difficult to comprehend it. It means it was hard to swallow. It was hard to accept. Jesus is talking to a large gathering of disciples and he tells them, some of you do not believe. Some of you are following for the wrong reasons. Some of you don't have saving faith. Verse 66, people hear what he has to say, and they head for the door. They're out. They were following him for all kinds of reasons, but not the right one. They're false disciples. They're not the real deal. So what is Jesus talking about when he says, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood? Well, he's talking about, I have to be the center of your life. I have to be food and drink that sustains you. I have to be the one that gives you life. I have to be at the very center of your life. We all have things at the center of our life. It's the way we're wired by God. You are wired by God to worship whether you realize it or not, you can run from it, but that's who you are. There will be something that you pursue to be the center of your life. It could be career. It could be education. It could be family. It could be relationships. It could be money and power. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. But they weren't designed to be at the center, to give you ultimate meaning and purpose and if you pursue those things and make them the center of your life, it's like chasing the wind. It's never enough. It won't do it for you. You're never satisfied. You'll never be happy and fulfilled. In John 6, Jesus says, I have to be the center of your life. And people will hear it, and they know what he's saying, and they head for the door. Jesus is the one, he says, that needs to be your hope. He refuses just to be part of your life. You'll hear people say, I know I need to make God part of my life. If you offer that to him, he'll say no thanks. He wants to be the center. He wants to be the very person that your whole life revolves around. A false disciple doesn't come to grips with the lordship of Jesus Christ. I guess if I had to distill why everybody hit the door, it's this whole issue of surrender this whole issue of lordship. They see themselves living a moral life, these people that head for the exit. But the funny thing is, is their Jesus today, it seems, for, for those that are waffling, those that have one foot in and one foot out, that Jesus sees everything the same way they do. It's funny how that works. So if the Bible says something they disagree with, 
It's not a big deal. They either write it off and move on because they have a low view of Scripture or they pick which Scripture they want to obey and what's really from God and what's really not. Or they buy a book from a teacher that says exactly what they want to hear and they say, see, it's backed up. They say prayers, they might attend church, but they have never wrestled with the lordship of Christ. He's not preeminent. He's not the center of their life. They haven't surrendered to him. And when Jesus says something really difficult, something really tough, they either walk away or they reformulate their view of Jesus. But either way, they're abandoning and heading for the exits on the real deal. There are a lot of ways to fall into false discipleship. Let's talk about some of them. First, <clears throat> are the disciples that follow the crowd. There are disciples that are more shaped by Western culture than Scripture. And we live in a post-Christian culture. Years ago, if you had basic biblical values, you didn't stand out. You weren't weird. Almost everybody held those same values. It's not that most people had a saving faith in Jesus Christ, but they shared that common, that common foundation of Judeo-Christian values that formed and shaped society. Today we live in a culture that worships personal autonomy. That is the value that is, that is elevated above all else. So truth is not subjective. It's personal. I'm speaking my truth. You have your truth. I have mine. Sexual identity is not something given to you by the Creator. It's something you discover inside of you. Verse 2 says that a large crowd was following Jesus. There is power in a crowd. A crowd can exert a lot of influence, and there is incredible power in our post-Christian Western culture. It's the sea in which all of us swim. We all live in it. It's in the movies and shows we watch. It's in the schools and universities. It's in politics. It's throughout social media. You cannot avoid it. It's everywhere. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, talks about a pastor who has given up on the supernatural aspect of God, doesn't believe in the resurrection of Christ. He dismisses the miracles contained in the Bible. He explains them all away. He doesn't believe that the Bible is really the word of God. Christian friend tells him this, and I quote, We never abandoned the historic Orthodox views of the church because they didn't hold intellectual water. We simply found ourselves in contact with a certain current of ideas and plunged into it because they seemed modern. They seemed successful. We just started automatically saying the kind of things that won applause. We were afraid of crude salvation, afraid of a breach with the spirit of the age. Afraid of ridicule, afraid of real spiritual fears and hopes. And friends, if we're not careful, we will begin interpreting what we read in Scripture through the lens of culture instead of interpreting what we see in culture through the lens of Scripture. And there's a huge difference in the outcome of both of those. Second kind of false discipleship happens when People have a transactional relationship with Jesus. They follow him for the miracles. They follow him for what they think he can do. In verse 26, Jesus says, you followed because I gave you bread. He's talking to those that were there. 
for the loaves and the fish. And honestly, we're all tempted to do that. We're all tempted to make our relationship with Jesus transactional. If I do this for you, God, then you will do this for me, right? Because that's how I would do it. And if I live a good life, well, then, God, you owe me a good life. When I was pastor in Edmonds, Washington, there's an older woman that was well-loved in the church. She was faithful, volunteered, had a lot of friends and connections in that place. Her only son died in an avalanche. And in the Pacific Northwest, a lot of people head out in the mountains. You mountain climb, you, you climb, whatever it is. And it's rare, but it happens. And I guarantee you're not going to die of an avalanche in Indiana. That is one thing I can guarantee will never happen to you. But unfortunately, it happened to her through her son. And the church reached out to her. Because she disappeared after that happened. And so they reached out, as the body of Christ should, in her moment of grief, and said, we love you, we're praying for you, we miss you. And she said, I'm never coming back. Because how could God do that to my son? How could God take my son away from me? She never came back. And I'm not in judgment. I lost both my parents in their early 50s when they were in their early 50s. I get it. Something tragic happens and we say, how could God do that? How could he have allowed that to happen? I wouldn't treat me that way. If I was God, I wouldn't have done that to me. I wouldn't have done that to anybody. How can he do it? We don't have time to get into the sovereignty of God, but... Just let me say this, and Carl and Val have a marriage conference and coming up, and I'd highly encourage you to attend that. They don't fight like Carl and me. Val doesn't have to really work at being with Carl like Carla does for me. But any relationship that is defined by, I wouldn't treat me that way, is doomed for failure. I tried that early on in my marriage. Carla would say something, she wouldn't say something. She would do something, she wouldn't do something. And I would be crushed, I would be disappointed because I would say, I would not have done that. I would have said this. I wouldn't have behaved that way. I wouldn't have treated me that way. And you know, if that's your standard for God, it will doom that relationship like it will your marriage, or any other friendship, any relationship that you have. With God as in a marriage, it's a covenantal relationship, not a contractual one. You see, in the covenant, the relationship is based on commitment and trust. And in contractual relationship, it's based on what I get out of it. I'll do my part, you do yours. You meet my expectations, I'll meet yours. Third false discipleship is one that is based on being right. And here is what I mean by that. I have friends in the church on both sides of the spectrum, conservative and progressive. They take a lot of joy in being right. They love to read and study. Nothing wrong with that. But what happens is they find themselves in a spot where they've got it all figured out. I mean, if you read Genesis through Revelation, 
and you get it all, and you understand it, come see me. I mean, if there's nothing in there that ticks you off, nothing in there that you said, I don't know why God did that. I mean, you're better than me. But there are folks that they've got it all figured out. It's, it's, it's like a, a German scientist. They approach their faith and they've, they, they've got an answer for everything. And here's how you can tell if you're drifting into that false kind of discipleship. is because people that don't know Jesus won't have anything to do with you. Because they can sniff it out. This gal thinks she knows everything. This gal thinks that, or guy, that he's got it all together. And obviously I don't. Fourth, and I won't spend much time here and we'll wrap it up, is the disciple that follows Jesus to be their political king. I wasn't going to talk about this because we're in an election year. But I have to because the text does. John chapter 6, there are a lot of people in that crowd that day that were there because they wanted to see Jesus in Pilate's throne. They wanted to see him take over from Herod and Pilate and ultimately from Caesar. Jesus is going to go overthrow the Romans. I'm hanging around to figure this out. I can't wait till that happens. And today there are a lot of Christians that place their faith and hope in the next election. Their hope for their children is that the right party gets in power. Their hope for the future, their entire hope, is based on the next election. That's what they're passionate about. That's what they're spending the time with. That is what they're fighting for. And I'm not saying that the outcome of elections isn't important. It is. I care a lot about how I vote. But it is not my hope it is not the end of the world regardless of which power is in control because Jesus Christ is the one that rules and reigns and he will not disappoint he has never lost an election ever that's what kings do finally Let's show what Peter does. He shows us really what true discipleship is like. In his confession, which is really what he does, it's a confessional. He reveals what it means to be a true follower of Christ. Jesus says he's alone, he's the bread of life. He alone should be the center of your life. People leave in droves. That's not why they were there. They were there for all these wrong reasons. And they're out. Jesus after the dust settles, looks at the guys around him, 12 of them. And he says, are you going to leave too? Peter responds, Lord, where will we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Where would we go? He asks a rhetorical question. It's a confession. He is confessing to Jesus. He's confessing to us that he is powerless to save himself. He's confessing he doesn't have all the answers to life, but he knows one that does. He confesses, I can't hold my future in my hands, but you are the one that can do it. He's helpless as a sinner. He's abandoned the idea 
of who he thinks Jesus should be, and he's allowing him to be who he really is. And he surrenders to it. I think the reason why we resist so often Orthodox Christian doctrine that says God created you, you're twice his, you are twice bought by him, he redeemed you on the cross and he created you, he owns you twice, is because we have to surrender this idea, and some of it is in our American culture that we are self-made men and women, that we are autonomous, that we call the shot. We determine our destiny. We determine our identity. We determine who we are. We have to surrender that. Peter says, where would we go? In that question, he's confessing, I have no other place to go but Jesus. He's come to the end of himself. Secondly, Peter says, you alone have the words of eternal life. Jesus, I want you to know, friends, is exclusively inclusive. He is exclusively inclusive. In him, salvation is available to every single man, woman, and child. But it's exclusive because salvation is only found in him. Theologian David Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote these words, that anyone who has any conceivable alternative to salvation through Jesus Christ, an alternative to him, is not a Christian. There's that old hymn that says, On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Twelve hours ago, I didn't know I was going to be here standing in front of you. But I think God is sovereign and he knows what he's doing. And I don't know where you are 12 hours. I don't know where you are now. There might be some of you here today that Maybe this message hit a little hard, and you think, maybe I have had one foot in and one foot out. And Jesus is asking, are you ready to surrender? Are you ready for me to be your food and your drink? Are you ready to surrender, to allow me to be the center of your life? Not in this area, but all of it. And he's asking you. And maybe you, like Peter, would say, I don't know where else I would go. I don't know who can provide me the answers that I need except by you. Or maybe you came into this place and you don't have any foot on the right side of the line. And Jesus is asking you, are you willing to partake in the bread of life? Are you willing to give up the authority, the autonomy? Are you willing to make me king? King. King Jesus. King. Sovereign. Lord. Master. Savior. Are you ready? This is your moment. This is your time. As the worship team comes, we've got folks over there that would be glad to pray with you. You can settle this thing in your seat if you want to. And I think the common denominator between whether you got one foot in or no foot in is Jesus is asking you the same thing.
Are you willing to completely surrender? To take the hands off your life and allow him to see what he can do to give you hope and purpose and joy and enter into a real relationship with someone you will wrestle with, that you will work with, that you might not, dis- you might not agree with every single thing, but you're going to trust him that he is right. And you walk by faith. We sang, great is thy faithfulness. He's the only one that changes not. He's the only one that his compassions, they fail not. Pray with me, church. Would you stand? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here today, to be standing here today on this platform and to be talking about somebody far greater, far more worthy of our love and devotion. May every single person that walks out of here today have that same confession as Peter. Lord, I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying by you. I might not understand it all. I might not be able to grasp it all. But you're my only hope. You alone have the words of eternal life. And it's by the bread of life, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.